Well, Brittany and I are in a weird stage of discipling our children, raising our children, and I think every stage is weird, right? Parents, can I get an amen? Uh, We have elementary age kids and one preschooler, and those of you who have raised kids for much longer than I have, you can probably say these seasons are going to get weirder and continue to be more intense, but the weird stage for us right now consists of the question that our kids are often asking us. Are those people Christians? Or is that church a Christian church? See, we live in St. Louis Park, and we're building friendships with with many different people in our community, and as we hang out with different people who have different worldviews, different thought processes, they go to different churches, they may not go to church at all, but we spend time with these people, our our kids are starting to notice, like, they seem really nice, they seem really kind, They're, they're my friends, they go to this church, does that church believe similar things to what our church believes? They go to, they, they, they say they're part of this faith, does that faith believe certain things that, that we believe? Are, are they Christians? Am I going to see my friend in heaven, or is my friend not granted heaven? Is my friend on a path to hell? And as we drive past other churches, is that a Christian church? Is, is, do the people who go there, do they have saving faith? These are awkward questions to engage, right? And often I don't know how to answer them. Because how do we, how do we define and, and judge and make a determination of who's in and who's out? Even within our own church, as life goes and as we walk with Jesus and as some people fall away from walking with Jesus, who's in and who's out? Who's a Christian? I find myself perplexed and torn and, and not knowing how to answer my kids. I was listening to a song from John Guerra yesterday right after I had one of these questions from my children, and this song is titled Citizens, and he says, I have a heart full of questions, quieting all of my suggestions. What is the meaning of Christian in this American life? I thought, that's my, that's my unfortunate answer for my kids. I have a heart full of questions myself, Avery and Judah. Quieting all of my suggestions. What is the meaning of Christian in this American life? What is the meaning of Christian? It's it's hard to to know if somebody's in or out. It takes tons of questions, tons of time getting to know them, building relationships, knowing what is their mental assent to the essentials of the gospel. Do they believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that nobody comes to God the Father except through him? Are they seeking to apply these things? What does it mean to be a Christian? And so... That's kind of the backdrop of what I've been wrestling through the last couple months even as my kids are asking these questions, as as I'm asking these questions, as I engage with people in our community, and and as I try to just understand what is the essence of the Christian faith. And so this fall, we're studying the disciples. We're looking at different disciples and trying to learn what does it mean to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to be one of the way, one who follows Jesus. The more biblical term for it is a disciple or one who is in Christ. And so this fall, we're studying the lives of the disciples, looking at their lives and and saying, what what was involved in walking with Jesus? What are the elements or the characteristics to being a Christian? And to boil it down simply, it's just one who walks with Jesus, one who keeps going. And in this journey, in this process, like this song says, we oftentimes have a heart full of questions, quieting all of our suggestions. Life is more complex and more contradictory, and there's more tensions than sometimes we realize. And especially, it's hard to answer these questions when there's relational connection involved. I 
feel oftentimes like the Apostle Paul, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, I'm perplexed but not driven to despair. I'm perplexed about many of these things. And so it's in this that, that I'm wanting to come back to the basics. What does it mean to walk with Jesus? As we look at these disciples and the characteristic of their life and their ups and downs of walking with Jesus, how can you and I be encouraged by their faith and their continual walk with Jesus in spite of their failures and missteps? And then what is the essence of following Jesus? And so there's many different things. We can't boil it down to one. And as we look at different disciples, we're getting different portraits of what it means and looks like to walk with Jesus. And the last three weeks, we've been in kind of this three-week mini-series within a series. And the big idea, or the biblical idea, because this all comes from Scripture, is that disciples walk with Jesus by loving one another, loving neighbors, and loving enemies. This is a description of a disciple or a Christian. How do we know who's a Christian? Well, it's not our place to judge and make it a definitive answer to that question anyway, but, but how do we know if, if we're walking with Jesus? How do I know if my faith is genuine? How do I know if those, those close to me and the people that I'm doing life with in my church and my community, how are, how are we growing? Well, one of the ways to measure this and to understand this and to seek to grow is that disciples or apprentices of Jesus, they walk with him by loving one another, that's brothers and sisters in Christ, by loving their neighbors, that's those who we're proximate to, not necessarily those who we just have an affinity for, Talked about that last week. Talked about loving one another the week before. And then also loving enemies. That's where we're going today, to talk about loving enemies. Jesus gives us all three of these categories and throughout the scriptures, these are the defining marks of those who walk with Jesus. Those who love one another, the family of God. Those who love their neighbor, those that they're in close proximity to. And then those who love their enemies. And so today we're going to talk more about what it means to love our enemies. And to do so, we're going to start by looking at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. So if you could stand as I read this text to get us started, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, instructs his disciples, his apprentices, his followers, saying, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God, we thank you that you are perfect and that you've called us into your perfection. Help us to understand what that means and looks like today related to loving our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Well, what I want you to know first off is that this teaching of Jesus is radically countercultural, not just for us living in 2021 in the United States and Minnesota in the Twin Cities 
metro, this teaching to love your neighbor is radically countercultural throughout the history of the world in all cultures, in all religions, in all civilizations, in all nations. There has never been another teaching like this. If you trace any like good teacher or movement that, that has this element of teaching to love an enemy, it all stems back to Jesus. And, and it kind of flows out of the Old Testament ethic to love God and to love neighbor. And so the last couple of weeks as we've talked about this, Jesus has been kind of building on the Old Testament commands. The Shema, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then Leviticus chapter 19, it tells God's people, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people and community to love neighbor as self. And last week we talked about expanding that definition of loving neighbor, that, that the Jews would commonly think of my neighbor is my fellow Jew, or not even just my fellow Jew, but my fellow Jew who kind of thinks the way that I think and interprets Torah, the law, the way that I interpret the Torah or the law, uh, they wouldn't necessarily have thought of Samaritans as their neighbor. Those Samaritans were partially Jewish. They had Jewish lineage and Jewish heritage, but because they had intermarried and procreated with other nations and they had mixed in other religions, the Jews would not have thought of Samaritans as their neighbors. And so Jesus then expands this definition of neighbor to be somebody who you're proximate with. Anyone who God brings into your path, whether that's on a consistent daily basis or whether that's somebody you're passing by and in a moment there's a crisis, they have a need, you're in their orbit, they are your neighbor, you must love them. And so Jesus is expanding this definition of what it means to love. The kingdom ethic of Jesus' followers, of his disciples, is to love one another, to love neighbor, and then to love enemy. He builds upon this in the most radical and countercultural way imaginable. The, the, way is that, the way that nations would protect themselves and, and grow their influence in their kingdom, and the way that religions would influence the world with their religion, with their su- subscribed way of viewing the world, would be to conquer enemies. Right? This, is, this is still true. And this is why nation wars with nation, why religion wars with religion, because we see other people, other cultures, other countries, other religions, other governments as the enemy. And, and if, if we're subscribing to a certain one, everyone else is an enemy. And there was this, this thought in the Jewish mind that that was true because God hates evil. The Old Testament tells us over and over again that God hates evil. He has has wrath, which, before you're turned off by that word wrath, know that the meaning of that is a settled opposition to what is wrong and what hurts people. Wrath is a good thing. For God to have wrath or hatred of evil is a good thing because it means that he's steadily opposed to the things that hurt us. His creation, man and woman, black and white and brown, all nations of the world, people, human beings created in his image and likeness. God has a settled opposition towards what hurts us and damages us and divides us. That, that's God, God's hatred towards evil, his settled opposition towards the things that tear us apart. And so naturally in the Jewish mind, they thought, well, God hates evil, therefore we hate evil. Therefore, these other nations, they're worshiping false gods. They're nations of evil. They're doing despicable things. They're working against Yahweh and his people. They are our enemies. Therefore, we hate our enemies. And this is what Jesus is addressing here. He says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which isn't anywhere in Scripture. What is in Scripture in the Old Testament is, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But in the Jewish mind and tradition, they had, they had built up this culture and even this teaching, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And so Jesus is building upon this and also what is in the Old Testament law in verse 38 when he says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that, that is in the Old Testament. There's this teaching going on here. There's, there's this, this Old Testament ethic that the punishment would match the crime. Right? When God gave his law in the Old Testament, he set up ways of the Israelites doing life when they were in the wilderness, when they came out of Egypt and they were living in the wilderness for 40 years. And then when they finally came into the promised land and they, they built a nation and they built up walls and they, they had some systems, some structures, some government, God had given them some laws so that they wouldn't rule foolishly. And in one of these laws was that the punishment would fit the crime. That's what it means by an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so this is kind of the Old Testament backdrop that Jesus here is now speaking into. To primarily Jewish followers here now, it's going to be opened up to Gentiles as Jesus' ministry continues. But he's telling his first followers, here's this new kingdom ethic. It's, it's to not retaliate. There's this, there's this governmental law that the retaliation, that the punishment should match the crime, and that's there for a reason. What Jesus isn't doing here, he's not telling us how to structure our government. He's not telling us anything about capital punishment or what type of laws and um, sentencing for laws. He's not getting into that. What Jesus here is doing is he's saying, in my kingdom, there's this new ethic. It's a personal ethic, and it's a community ethic for the people of God of how they ought to live. How they treat neighbor. So, so sometimes we, we, we read things from Scripture into what we think about government, or we take what we think about government and nations and, and all of that, and, and then we kind of impose that onto Scripture. That's not what Jesus is dealing with here. So there's a time and a place to talk about, like, what's the role of a government protecting its citizens? What's just war? Is there just war? What type of punishment matches crimes. There, there's a time and a place to have that conversation. Jesus isn't having that conversation. What Jesus is doing here, he's saying, as my followers, as my disciples, the ethic that you would have in your personal relationships with one another, with your neighbors, and particularly on this topic with your enemies, the ethic that you would have as an individual, and then the ethic that you have as my community, as my people, as my family, it's different than the world. You, you operate as a city within a city, regardless of your country's policies and politics and structure and government and constitution. And regardless of that, my people, they operate as a city within a city. Or, as biblical language always says, that, that we're sojourners. We're citizens of heaven, not earth. So we have this different guiding ethic. We have this different constitution. It's scripture and it's Jesus's teaching and he's saying there's this radically different way to do life you are a kingdom capital k kingdom within a kingdom lowercase k kingdom america or whatever country you're from whatever wherever you grew up whatever culture you desire to live in here on this earth he says you you are a kingdom people and so that's the first thing first and Jesus here offers this ultimate de-escalation strategy. I mean, there's a lot of conversation right now about de-escalation. How do we grow in the skill of de-escalation? 
you know, between some of the police relations with the community in school. I have some friends who work with special ed students and they do a lot of training on de-escalation because there's a lot of intense moments and you need to de-escalate the situation and not escalate the situation by adding conflict to conflict, by adding um, controversy to controversy. Parents, you probably know what this is like with your kids. Well, you know, you know the opposite of it. Like, you know how to escalate generally because it's just easier. Comes by nature to escalate a conflict. Like somebody comes at you, disrespects you, confronts you, slaps you on the cheek, as Jesus says, takes something from you, as Jesus says, or unjustly forces you to do something. The natural fleshly human reaction is to return that. It's to escalate the situation, not to de-escalate the situation. Here Jesus gives us this beautiful pattern for de-escalation. Jesus is, is, Jesus' people ought to be leading the world in these type of conversations because we have the book on it. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Old Testament law, retaliation should not outdo the original offense. Okay, there's a time and a place for that conversation. But then he's saying to us personally and to his community, his followers, his disciples, here's the kingdom ethic. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other. This here was, was a personal offense. A slap on the cheek oftentimes was given by like a, a superior to a subordinate. It's like a, a backhanded slap and it, it was more of just a humiliation, an insulting thing. It's like, it's like a boss or a friend or a parent or a child who makes a cutting comment in front of others and, and you feel put down, you feel slapped across the cheek. And Jesus is saying rather than returning that act with a put down, rather than returning that evil act, whatever it is, it's evil, doesn't necessarily mean the person is evil, but they just had a personal action of evil against you. Jesus says, rather than retaliating, I say to you, turn the other cheek. Consider, maybe they're having a bad day. Consider, maybe they didn't mean that comment. Consider that, that, that maybe that, that's revealing something broken in them rather than something true and broken in you. And, and maybe just shower them with grace. In that moment. Verse 40. He says, if anyone would sue you and take a tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So this is more of a, a legal recourse. If somebody, if somebody takes this legal recourse against you, whether it's fair or unfair, whether it's just or unjust, rather than fighting them, shower them with love and grace. Maybe if they're coming after your land, if they're coming after your possessions, if they're coming after your business, if they're coming after whatever it is, maybe you just say, you know, you, you can have it. I don't need to fight for it. My identity isn't wrapped up in it. And so if, if you need it, it's yours. He says, if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Oftentimes, Roman soldiers would force people peasants and, and Jews, they would force them to carry, so, so Jews and Romans, like the Romans are ruling the known world at this time, and Jews are occupying different spaces within the Roman Empire. They're living in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem and little villages, but the Romans are the governmental power of the day. And so oftentimes, if they're traveling, they would see some peasants or some Jews or just some other Romans, some other Greeks who 
didn't have power, and they would say, hey, you, I need your help. Carry my luggage. Carry my stuff. I'm going to this village. I'm tired. You're going to be my servant. You're going to be my slave. You're going to carry my things. And here Jesus is saying, it, it, and, and remember, Peter is one of his disciples here. Peter was a zealot. That means that Peter, Peter liked to use force against the Roman government. Peter, as a Jew, he thought that the Roman government was an unjust, oppressive government, and his personal propensity and his crew of zealots, they like to fight back with power, with swords. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter pulls out his sword and chops off the ear of the Roman soldier? That's Peter's M.O. That's his personality. It's also his culture of a, a zealot. It's like, no, use force. Stand up. Fight for what's right. Don't allow yourself to be taken advantage of. Push back. Kick back. If a Roman soldier asks you to carry his stuff for a mile and it's unjust, this is an unjust act of government. It's an abuse of power. It's him lording his position or his authority over you. Push back. Fight back. And Jesus says, Peter, if a Roman soldier unjustly asks you to carry his stuff for a mile, offer to carry it too. What we're seeing here is this kingdom ethic in, in Romans that says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Jesus here is teaching his followers, his people, that as you love people who are opposed to you and you're opposed to, there's some conflict, some real conflict, there's some real evil going on. But as you love them, as you turn the other cheek, as you give your stuff away, as you willingly serve them, even if they're unjustly abusing you and using you, this is a bigger testimony to the kingdom of God, to the ethic of Jesus, to the person and work of Jesus Christ than anything else that you could do. Not sticking up for your rights, not fighting back, not, not, not laying down the law, not saying, I'm not going to go there with you, you're using your power unjustly. It's saying, if, if in love we humble ourselves and we say, how can I serve you? Yes, you're broken. Yes, you're abusing your power, but how can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I lay down my very life for you? In our culture, you and I may not be slapped on the cheek in the same way we may not be sued for our possessions in the same way. We may not be forced to walk a mile with the Roman soldier in the same way, but we have various ways that this applies to us. David Turner, one commentator on this passage, says, here's how we apply this. One must be willing to selflessly suffer personal loss with faith that the loving Heavenly Father will meet their needs and deal with the injustice in his own timing. For vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Jesus is saying, don't take matters into your own hands. People aren't going to see that God is a God of love who wants to redeem them and welcome them into his family, into his kingdom by you retaliating, by you getting even, by you drawing the line in the sand. And, and this isn't saying that you should put yourself in the way of abuse and keep being in the way of abuse, right? There's, again, there's some nuance, some complexity to this, but this is just the kingdom ethic that Jesus is telling us, that my followers in their personal relationships and in their community, when they're unjustly treated, they don't retaliate, they don't lash out, they don't act out, they de-escalate the situation. Can you imagine how much this de-escalates when somebody insults you, slaps you on the cheek, and you just, you don't return the insult with an insult? You say, I'm sorry, can, can I pray for you today? It seems like you're upset. Did I do anything to upset you? I'm sorry that you're coming after my stuff. Do you need stuff? I have stuff. Do you want it? Or I don't have anything, but my buddy does. You can have his stuff. 
This is a community ethic, a kingdom ethic. I'll give his stuff away to you. I'm sorry that you're tired on this journey to the next town with all your luggage. Man, the Roman, the Roman government must be working you hard. Can I help? Can you imagine? Rather than getting mad at the soldier who's asking you to carry his stuff to say, oh, the Roman government, they work you pretty hard, don't they? Can I help? How that would de-escalate and turn this Roman soldier over and like, what? What's wrong with you? And just that internal turmoil that that Roman soldier might be feeling to please his boss. And like, if you don't do the right thing for the Roman Empire, you lose your life. And and for Jesus' people to be like, yeah, I'll I'll help you. I'll carry your stuff. So Jesus teaches us this de-escalation tactic. This is how we love our enemies. And he goes on, he says, you have heard that it was said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, love your neighbor is in the Old Testament law. Hate your enemy is not. This is a religious tradition. This is a religious mindset that they had built up that they thought was biblical. They thought was scriptural. And Jesus tears it apart. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. And love isn't a sentiment, it's an action. Love is compassion in action, like we talked about last week. Jesus is saying to love your enemies, to actually put into action your faith. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is evidence that you've been adopted into the family of God as you begin to grow in this kingdom ethic. For he makes his, I love this, the common grace of God. It says, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Sometimes we like to punish ourselves and think God isn't being good to me now in this season because of my disobedience or God sent a flood on those people or a drought on these people because of their disobedience. And and here Jesus is saying there's some common grace. That's actually the more common way that God operates with mankind is to give rain and sun to all of people, not to favor the in and the out crowd. For God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is impartial. God has no partiality. His kingdom is open to all. All is received by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. God is impartial. He's opened up the way. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God is impartial. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I love this little offense to Matthew here. He's like, Matthew, remember, you used to be a tax collector. Don't be like that. Don't be partial. Don't love your fellow tax collectors and hate other people. And, and, and disciples like Peter and James and John, who Matthew used to tax you and you used to hate him, no longer can you hate him. He's, he's no longer your enemy. He was at one point, you saw him as your enemy, but now he's your brother. Love him. Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Saying, you think you're righteous because you're Jews. You have the Old Testament law. You've been striving to follow it. Well, the Jews even do that. I mean, the Gentiles even do that. Even the the non-religious or the irreligious or the other religions, the pagans, even they favor the people who favor them. That's not hard. Show no partiality. 
He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Keep that verse in mind as we come back and talk about the gospel at the end of the sermon here. But there is Jesus' teaching. I want to start there. Consider Jesus' teaching, this upside-down ethic where Jesus is calling his followers. Part of, the, part of the assessment of our own heart, are we faithfully walking with Jesus? Are we growing in our walk with Jesus? Is Am I loving my enemies more and more? Am I willing to lay down my life, lay down my rights, lay down my preferences, lay down my perspectives for people who I perceive as enemies? Now we need to pause there and talk about what is an enemy? Because sometimes I think we get this confused. And so there's a biblical definition of enemy in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 that I want you to look at. It's on page 979 in the Pew Bible. What is an enemy? Ephesians 6.12 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Biblically, what we're being taught in this verse, but this is coming out of an entire text, an entire scripture that would help to back this point up, which Paul just makes very crisp and clean here to the Ephesians, is that our enemy isn't flesh and blood. It's not other people created in the image of God. It's the spiritual forces of evil, as he says, these rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The heavenly places, what, what that means, there's just this cosmic unseen realm. There is an unseen realm where there are spiritual forces of good and evil. And our enemy lives there. Our enemy, the enemy of God and God's people is Satan and his demons who are deceiving the nations. America included in that. Deceiving the nations. He's called the angel of light because he's deceptive and he appears as light. But really, it's darkness. There's this cosmic battle going on which you and I, human beings, created in God's image and likeness, have fallen prey to and they are preying upon us. And so our enemy isn't other nations. It's not other cultures. It's not other religions. It's not people who wear masks or don't wear masks. Right? Right? It's this spiritual force of evil or darkness who has deceived people. And so Jesus here is teaching us in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, love your enemies, and this biblical definition of enemies is the spiritual forces of evil. Our enemy isn't people. It's not other human beings created in God's image and likeness. It's not politicians. It's not governments. It's not other religions or worldviews or other value systems. There may be deception in any of those, right? There is deception in every sphere of human institution. But human institutions and human people aren't inherently our enemy. There's this spiritual force behind them that's leading them astray, that's deceiving them. And our job as Christ followers is not to war with other people people to see other people or posture ourselves in steady opposition to other people. It's to say there's, a, there's an enemy, which if I'm not careful, I get led astray by his tactics, by his deceit, and, and other people are led astray by his deceit. And so we work not against them, we work for them by trying to point out the enemy, by trying to, by trying to 
dispel the enemy by proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to set us free, and that you are not my enemy. We have one common enemy. He doesn't care about our church, our denomination, our religion. He doesn't care about another competing church, denomination, religion. The, the more havoc that he can wreak among us, the more successful he will be, the more deceptive he has been. Christians fighting with Christians, right? If, if Jesus' ethic, I'm used to the screen being back here, it's not back there. If Jesus' ethic is for us to love one another, this, this spiritual force that we work against, the real enemy would have us turn and compete with one another blast one another, condemn one another, accuse one another, fight with one another, divide from one another. This enemy, this deceiver would, would have us not love our neighbor, but judge our neighbor, distance our neighbor, move, move away from our neighbor so that we could find a new neighbor to fight with about something else. This deceiver would have us see another religion, another politician, another governmental system as our enemy. Rather than get underneath that and say, what, what's the powers at work behind this that are deceiving the nations and the masses? And how can we bring Jesus to bear in this situation? And so that's the biblical definition of enemy. What I want to do now is just look at one incredible example of what it looks like to practically love our enemies. Flip over to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. I'm going to look at verse 54 through 60. And in context here, Stephen is one of the early disciples here in the early church. After Jesus ascends back into heaven, the church is growing like gangbusters and they're struggling to meet all the demands. Widows are being neglected with the daily distribution of food. There's hungry widows who need food and they're not getting their food. And so the apostles appoint different, different ministers to help carry this out. Stephen is appointed in chapter 6 as the minister to oversee the daily distribution of bread. It says that he's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And then he starts getting into trouble with the Jewish leaders because there's jealousy, competition over religion. There's, there's a growing movement of Gentiles who are entering the faith and claiming to be more Jewish than the Jews because they believe in Jesus, the Messiah, who the Jews thought wasn't the Messiah. And Stephen is getting in trouble with the religious establishment, and in Acts chapter 7, he gives this incredible sermon that summarizes God's story, the Old Testament of God's people being in Egypt and being led out of Egypt, and then God redeeming his people, and then ultimately Jesus coming as the Messiah. He gives this incredible sermon, and the religious establishment is offended, and that's where we pick it up here in verse 54. It says, now when they heard these things, the religious leaders who were putting Stephen on trial, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This was a common way that they would execute people for blasphemy, for, for crimes. Like if we talk about 
like a punishment outdoing the crime. This was one of the ways that they're punished. They allowed their, their flesh, their enraged hearts, their hatred to boil over and to overreact, and the punishment outweighed the crime. In fact, Stephen's committing no crime here other than proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, but they're saying it's blasphemy. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then when they had him out of the city, they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Can you imagine the scene? There's an angry mob in public throwing stones and boulders at this man with the intent of killing him for saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited hope of the world. And this was offensive enough to them that they drugged him into public and threw these stones and boulders. Talk about injustice. Talk about unfair. Talk about a heinous crime committed in public. And here's Stephen's response. Verse 60. Well, verse 59. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's trusting his eternal soul, his spirit to God the Father in his moment of death. And then verse 6, he says, And falling to his knee, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. His soul, his breath left his body because these stones had hit him so frequently that he died. And with his dying breath, he saw not these, these religious leaders and this religious establishment as his enemy. He saw beneath what they were doing, beneath their evil acts, beneath this act of murder in the streets, beneath this injustice. And he said, hold not this sin against them because he saw these people not as his enemy, but he saw the deceiver, the enemy behind it, and he wanted God to redeem these people, to save these people, to forgive these people for their own sins against him to his very life. Is that an incredible picture of loving an enemy or a perceived enemy or understanding who the real enemy is? And you know why Stephen could do this? Because Jesus modeled it for him. In Luke chapter 23, the way that Dr. Luke records Jesus's crucifixion. Jesus is on the cross, and with one of his last statements, with one of his last inhales, as he looks out upon the crowd, some weeping, some mocking, most mocking, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus has set the stage. He set the example for what it looks like for his followers, his disciples, to love enemy. Not to retaliate, not to get even, not to drive a stake in the ground, not to drive, draw a line in the sand, not to stick up for our rights and our perspectives and our opinions and, our, and, our, and, and what we want, but to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I would involve us in that statement. Jesus can say, forgive them for they know not what they do. Here, Stephen's incredible act, Lord, hold not the sin against them. But for us, it's, Father, forgive me. For I know not what I do. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive us, for we are broken and confused and in danger of being deceived. And so reveal to us the truth and the gospel and forgive us. 
And the ultimate example we see in Romans chapter 5. Flip there with me as we close down and turn our eyes to communion and to a reminder of the gospel. That we're saved not by our ability to love our enemies. We're saved not by our ability to love one another, to love neighbor, and to love our enemies. These are descriptive of Jesus' people. This should be our ethic. This should, this should be what we are growing in, right? We walk with Jesus by growing in love for one another, love for neighbors, and love for enemies. But we're not saved by our ability to do that because you and I know that we fall short time and time and time again. So we're saved by Jesus' ability to do that. Look at how Paul says this and teaches us this here in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Paul writes, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While who was still weak? We. Not our perceived enemies. Some humility here. While, while I was still weak, at the right time, Christ died for me, the ungodly, the enemy of God. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so this morning, I want to invite you to take communion as the worship team plays this next song. Just sit and reflect and contemplate where you're at. That line, verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Jesus Christ. This little communion packet is here to remind you that while you were an enemy of God, while you were yet a sinner, Jesus intervened. He came and he walked a perfect life, loving the brothers and sisters, loving the neighbors, loving the enemies, loving God perfectly with all of his heart, soul, mind. He lived that perfect life and died a sacrificial death in our place on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so take communion remembering that truth. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We celebrate what you've done. Lord, I thank you that you loved us so much that, you're, that you sent your one and only son to die for us in our place, in our behalf. That while we were yet enemies, you entered our rebellion. You entered our evil and you dealt with it so that we might have new life. Lord, we take communion this morning remembering your love, your holy love for us. And we also take it asking that you would continue to transform us so that we could pass your holy love onto others, onto one another, onto our neighbors, and onto our enemies. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. Amen.